Right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. We pray that you will just open <clears throat> our eyes and our ears and soften, Lord, our heart. Well, we, we choose, Lord, to humble our hearts before you, that we might receive the word of God uh, and uh, that we might uh, respond to your word with uh, a humble, obedient heart and that we would uh, trust you and walk, Lord, in the counsel of your will, uh, that we might be a blessed and joyful people. And so help us today, we ask in your name, amen. For those of you that are visiting, uh, we are going through the book of Acts, and uh, one of the distinctives of the movement of Calvary Chapel is is that we do go through the Bible chapter and verse, and so we just find ourselves today in the book of Acts, and we are in the 21st chapter, so um, I don't cherry-pick my subjects. I look at the Bible, I look at what is in the next chapter, and I do my best to say what the Bible is saying. And so it's very important in these days to hear the counsel of God's word and all the counsel of God's word uh, because it's very important that we are biblical Christians and not cultural Christians. And so that is why we approach the word of God the way that we do. And so today, whatever I'm saying is because this is what I'm seeing in the text. So if you feel like saying, ouch, that's between you and the Lord. Gerald. All right. So last week, uh, we looked at Paul's journey. Really, uh, he's finishing his third missionary journey. And he is heading back to Jerusalem because he wants to be there for the Feast of Pentecost. And when you read the first 16 verses, it just sounds like a travel itinerary. Tells him about catching a boat, sailing down the coast of uh, Turkey, passing through some islands, and then basically coming uh, down to uh, basically uh, Antioch and Caesarea. And everywhere that he goes, the disciples are basically warning him by the Holy Spirit that if you go to Jerusalem, that you're going to suffer. And Agabus, even in Caesarea, took Paul's belt and he bound his hands and feet with Paul's belt and said, thus saith the Lord, the owner of this belt is going to suffer these things. And so what I try to bring to us last week is, is that Paul knew that he was heading for suffering, but he was a man of great conviction. And his convictions brought him courage, and his courage brought him into action. And so, uh, as people of God, when we believe the truth of God's word, we have a very great conviction that we are to act upon the word of God. And the thing that I tried to uh, bring out last week is is that 
The reason that we do have convictions and we do have courage in the Word of God is not simply because it's what God can do for us, though God does much for us. We realize that when we were helpless, Jesus Christ, while we were yet sinners, died for us. We know that he has saved us, not by works of righteousness that we've done, but by his grace. We know that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, and we are given uh, great and precious promises from the word of God that guide us and keep us through life. We know that God is our provider. We know that he's our peace. We know that he will direct us. We know that God can do infinitely more than we could imagine or ask or even think. We know that. But that is not why we serve God. We serve God because it's the truth. That the Bible is in fact true from Genesis to Revelation, and that everything that we are staking our lives on is because we have come to believe that Jesus Christ and the Word of God is in fact true. And so all of us today that are sitting here are staking our lives upon presuppositions of what we believe to be true. Or we are living unexamined lives and we don't actually know what we believe, but hey, we're having a good time. But the question is, is that at the end of life, we are going to realize one nanosecond into eternity that everything that we've based our lives upon is going to either be true or false. And so Paul's great convictions, even to the point of laying down his life and losing it, was based upon the conviction that what he had experienced and what he has believed and what he is preaching is in fact true. And Paul wrote to Timothy saying, I know in whom I have believed and I am, I am convinced I am able that he is to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. In other words, Paul said, look it, everything that I have invested into the kingdom of God, I am, I am absolutely sure that the payoff at the end of this life is so much greater than anything that I have invested in it. And so we were talking about really the con- courageous convictions of Paul. Now, the other thing that we noticed is that after the disciples pleaded with Paul and they couldn't change his mind, they said the best thing that could ever be said by anybody that's going to give counsel to anybody. Well, when we saw that Paul wouldn't be persuaded, we said, the Lord's will be done. Well, of course, that's exactly what we want to have done. Uh, If we are asked to give counsel or we want to receive counsel, What do we really want to hear? We want to hear truth. We want to hear something that we can base our life on because it's the truth. And so we as counselors always go back to God's word and we tell people what God says. And so when you go to somebody and you seek counsel from somebody, the first thing that you should ask yourself is, am I going to hear truth from them? Or am I just going to go to somebody that tickles my ears and tells me what I want to hear? 
Because if you seek out those counselors, it's a very sure bet that you're not going to see any real change come into your life. You want to seek people who are committed to the word of God. They have a conviction that it's the truth of God and that they are going to tell you what God says because they want your lives to be based upon truth and not a lie. Amen? All right, so today we're going to pick it up in chapter 21, and we're going to start in verse 17. Chapter 21 of the book of Acts and verse 17. And when we had come to Jerusalem, all right, so Paul's journey has come full circle. He has come back to Jerusalem. He's been warned about going back there, but he is convinced that he was, as he said, I am bound in my spirit to go. So when we had come uh, to Jerusalem, the brethren, in other words, the Jerusalem church, The brethren received us gladly, and on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When we had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. So Paul gives an account of his ministry. He goes before James and all the elders, and he tells them of all the things that God had been doing among the Gentiles up in Turkey, over in northern Greece, all the way down into southern Greece, and everywhere in between. And they rejoiced with what the Lord had done. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are zealous, they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to their customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Very interesting portion of Scripture. This story has many opinions about what Paul did, about what he should have done, or what he didn't do. Now, on the one hand, Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles, and we know that his message to the Gentiles and to the Jews was that he preached and taught that right standing with God is by faith through grace, 
and not by keeping the law. Now, the believers in the early church here in Jerusalem, it says that they were believers in the Lord Jesus, verse 20, myriads of Jews who have believed, yet they were zealous for the law. Very interesting. So we have in Jerusalem here, Jewish believers who have received Christ, and yet they seem to be zealous for the law, according to verse 20 of our text. And it also suggests, though it doesn't suggest, it tells us that these believers in Jerusalem have heard stories that Paul does not obey the law, that he forsakes Moses, he doesn't observe circumcision nor the customs of the Jews. The elders counsel Paul, and they say, if you're going to have any opportunity at all to minister in Jerusalem, we have four men that are going to take a vow, and we suggest that you join these men and fulfill that vow with them so that these Jews, both non-believers and believers, can see that you walk accordingly. In other words, that you are not here basically doing what you're accused of doing. So what is this all about? What kind of vow is this? I would take it uh, that this is a Nazarite vow. It was given to Israel out of the wilderness, and it's recorded for us in some detail in Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Nazarite vow is taken by individuals who have voluntarily dedicated themselves to God for a period of time. The vow is a decision or an action and a desire on the part of a person or people who desire to yield themselves completely to God by doing certain things for a certain time. By definition, the Hebrew word nazir simply means to be separated or consecrated, which is where we get the idea of the Nazarite vow. It's not because of the city of Nazareth. It's not because Jesus is a Nazarene. It's simply because the Hebrew word nazir means to be separated or consecrated, hence the Nazarite vow. Now, the Nazarite vow, which is recorded for us in number six, has five features. First, it's voluntary. Secondly, it could be done by either men or women. Thirdly, it has a specific time frame. Fourthly, it has specific requirements and restrictions. And fifthly, at its conclusion, a sacrifice is to be offered at the conclusion of this Nazarite vow. Now, In the Bible, we know that there were two people that were Nazarites that were dedicated by their parents from the time that they were born. One was Samson and the other was Samuel. And then in the New Testament, we have John the Baptist, who was a Nazarite and was dedicated from his birth by his parents to this vow. Now, there were three guidelines given to being a Nazarite. 
They were to abstain from wine or any fermented drink. Nor was the Nazarite to drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins or even the seeds or skins of grapes or raisins. Secondly, the Nazarite was not to cut their hair for the length of their vow. And lastly, they were not to go near a dead body because that would make them ceremonially unclean. Even if an immediate member of their family died, they were not to go near the dead body. Now, in the Old Testament, the Nazarite vow was a vow of consecration or separation. In the New Testament, this is what Paul tells us in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, for us as believers today, we're all Nazarites, because by the blood of Jesus, we are to live consecrated and holy lives by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Amen? And the Bible tells us that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And Paul says, that is your reasonable service. Oh, look at so-and-so. They're so spiritual. I could never attain to that. Uh, Actually, that's just reasonable service. It's just a reasonable way to live. When Jesus saves us, the reasonable thing to do is to give our all to him. That's just the reasonable way to live. Have you ever talked to people and they've said to you, you know, I tried that Jesus thing. Didn't work for me. You tried Jesus. So I'm, I'm computing in my mind and I'm not trying to short circuit or have steam come off the top of my head or out of my ears, and you're telling me you tried Jesus, but he, it didn't work for you. That's what you're telling me. Yeah. Yeah, I tried that Christianity thing. You know, it didn't work for me at all. Oh, and what did you expect God to do for you when you tried it? And then you realize that the whole idea behind it, their view of God and Christianity is that he's the celestial bellhop. I ring the bell and he comes running. But you've never realized that the key to actually living a joyful, overcoming, fulfilling life that Jesus talked about is not trying to get all that you can from God but actually giving all that we are to God. Many people will go thousands of miles and pay thousands of dollars to go and sit under the ministry of somebody, and this ministry has the audacity to charge them money for the gospel, and they will say, now, if you just come to my meetings or my seminars or sit under the spout where the glory comes out, 
you are going to find the key to finding what it means to getting all you need from God. And they come away frustrated because they think that someone's going to wave a magic wand over them and that, man, I've got everything I need from God. But the fact of the matter is, is that if you really want to find how to get everything from God, you need to change that equation around and just realize that if you give everything that you are to God, you will find the abundant life. Because Jesus says, you can't be my disciple unless you pick up your cross and follow me. Now, I don't know about you, but I believe that anybody that was carrying a cross in Jesus' day wasn't coming back for the full uh, massage and spa at the end of the day. Now, you kind of think, and I think, well, how does this Christianity work? Like, Aren't you going to sell me on Jesus, Dale? Aren't you going to tell me all the great things that he's going to do for me? And aren't you going to guarantee me happiness and peace and joy? And that when I become a Christian, man, I am going to have the proverbial bowl of cherries with the whipped cream on top? No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do it because it's not biblical. Because I can read through the Bible and I can show you Chosen vessel after chosen vessel, that's a word for person, people, who God chose and their life was never the same again. Never the same again. And the fact that God had chosen to serve them, God, how do I put this? God took them through some really deep waters. But you know what happens to people when they they realize that the life they always wanted is a lie. It's a mirage. And the life that Jesus offers is is the life that you really do find the abundance and the peace and the happiness. And it's minus all the things that we try to promise people. Does that make sense to you? Paul said, to give our all to God is our reasonable spiritual service. The more that I'm a pastor, I mean, I I really want to minister in grace to you all. But I have to tell you that if I don't, if I don't, If you're not surrendered to Jesus, I'm going to be on your case like white on rice. Because for me, I don't want you to just know about Jesus. I want you to surrender to Jesus. I want you to actually follow the Lord and know the Lord in a real and tangible way. You know that word reasonable services, the Greek word from where we get our, our English word logical. So to give your all to Jesus is just a very logical way to live your Christian life and to hold anything back scripturally is very illogical. So we are to give our all. Now, what would I say about this vow that Paul is taking? 
Well, I do not believe that Paul is putting himself under the law, nor is he compromising, because this vow had nothing to do with obtaining righteousness from God through works. All this vow was was an outward act of basically an inward desire in people's hearts. And this was already a desire in Paul's heart. And may I add that this isn't the first time that Paul took this vow, because if you look at Acts 18, verses 18 and 19, while Paul was still in emphasis, he remained a good while. And then he took leave of the brethren. He sailed for Syria and with Priscilla and Aquila were, uh, were with him. And he had his hair cut off at Santeria, for he had taken a vow. Now, that sounds like the exact same vow that he's taking here in Jerusalem. So this isn't the first time that Paul had taken this vow. It says, when he came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Now, it seems to me that Paul had taken a vow so that he could go in and share the gospel with the Jews in the synagogue in Ephesus. At least that's what I'm seeing because I see the same principle here when he comes to Jerusalem. Uh, Yeah, to Jerusalem. Now, listen to what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9. Here is the principle for his strategy of ministry. He said, 1 Corinthians 9, 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. And to those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. And to those who are without the law, as without the law, not being without law towards God, but under law toward Christ. That I might win those who are without law, To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. Now here's what I conclude. Paul would never have preached or taught that righteousness can be attained by keeping the law. If he taught that, then he's a hypocrite and he contradicts himself in the book of Galatians, in the book of Ephesians, just about everywhere that you read Paul. What is Paul doing? Paul, because he has a conviction, he humbles himself. This is an act of humility. And if you notice in our text, in verse 25, it gives a greater understanding to the context because it says there, but concerning the Gentiles, the non-Jews, who have believed, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. In other words, Paul said, I am doing nothing that compromises the truth of the gospel. All I'm doing is humbling myself, and to a Jew, I'm becoming a Jew so that I might save some by preaching the gospel to them. So let me summarize this. Some have argued by heeding the elders' request, Paul was making a tragic mistake. They accuse him of compromising his convictions and violating his conscience, even though it was for the best of motives. But I believe that such a view is unlikely for several reasons. First, 
Paul had taken this Nazarite vow on his second missionary journey that we just read about in Acts 18. Why then would it be wrong for him to participate in this ceremony now in Acts 21? Secondly, as noted, Paul's participation did not compromise any biblical truth. It was simply a matter of Christian liberty. Thirdly, if Paul made such a serious error, why would not the Holy Spirit have made it clear in the text? Luke, under the Spirit's inspiration, recorded Paul's failures as well as his strengths, and we don't get any sense that this was grievous to the Holy Spirit. Fourth, Paul's motives were pure. Coupled with his vast knowledge of biblical truth, that he would make such a serious mistake, I think, is highly unlikely. And finally, the negative results do not prove that he made a mistake. Such a pragmatic approach ignores the fact that Paul's arrest had been prophesied before he even arrived in Jerusalem. Paul's humiliated uh, humi- Paul's humility permeates, I believe, this story. He was humble before God giving him the glory for all that he had accomplished through his ministry. And he showed this humility by coming under the authority of the elders at the church of Jerusalem by agreeing to do what the elders asked of him. Does that make sense to you? I wanted to spend a little time for you Bible people out there that were going, what is... Paul doing there. So I hope that helps you a little bit. I believe that Paul had the conviction of humility. Now, uh, we come now to his arrest, and I'm not even going to be able to read about all of this without finishing and making any comments on it on time. So I'm going to quit there today. And uh, if you want to hear all about his arrest, you'll have to come next week. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the conviction of humility. Thank you, Lord, that having convictions doesn't mean that we need to be angry. Doesn't mean that we have to be disagreeable. Doesn't mean, Lord, that we have to uh, fight with people. But Lord, that we can have great scriptural conviction and we can walk, Lord God, in humbleness before our brothers and sisters and even before those, Lord God, who don't believe the gospel and have yet to receive you as their Lord and Savior. It also means that We don't have to compromise our convictions either. And nor should we. But we ask, Lord, that we would follow the example of Paul and that we would hold our convictions with a fierceness because the word of God is true. But we would also hold them, Lord God, with a gentle, firm, and loving attitude. May you bless this word, Lord, to our hearts today and encourage us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.